Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We're wrapping up Galatians 5, including the pivotal verses 1 and 13. And I heard a really good sermon this last weekend on Philippians 3 and was struck by the overlap with that chapter and what we've been talking about in Galatians. So I want to cover that to open up today's episode. Remember that the clarion call of Galatians 5, 1 and 13 is in the first half of both verses. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And then in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But there were two ways to mess that up. In verse 1, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Well, that's the same concern that Paul has in the beginning of Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Just as he does in Galatians, Paul here is messing with the circumcision party, the Judaizers, those who are legalists, who imagine that becoming a Jew, getting circumcised, observing the law, is necessary to becoming a Christian. And Paul has very harsh words for them in Philippians 3, just like he's had throughout the book of Galatians. But I like what Paul does with this in Philippians 3. Let's read verses 7 through 11. But whatever were gains to me and now consider loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is making the same case he's making in Galatians, that all the legalism is garbage. It doesn't result in a true righteousness that can't come from the law. It can only come through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of that faith. And it leads to knowing the power of his resurrection, a changed life. The legalist leads a pinched life, not a powerful life that only comes through life in the spirit that Paul has been describing in Galatians, especially chapter 5. Now, the other way to mess up freedom in Christ in Galatians 5.13 is not to use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Well, Paul does the same thing late in Philippians 3 
in verses 18 and 19. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. And what does Paul do with that in Philippians 3? The next two verses are famous, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so Paul concludes there with the glorification. So justification is by faith. Glorification eventually in heaven is by faith. And the middle of the great passage in Philippians 3 is on sanctification, our daily life in the goodness and greatness of God's kingdom. Again, famous verses, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 in Philippians. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Again, this is not the sort of language that you would get from a legalist, pressing on to the prize, living a passionate life for Christ, straining towards a goal. The legalist has already made it. The legalist has already achieved their goals, usually. They've defined the law in terms that allow them to meet it. They usually arrive there through pride, self-righteousness, their own efforts, and a spirit of condemnation and the like. Paul criticizes it in Philippians 3, and he crushes it in Galatians. So back to Galatians 5, how do we do this? And Paul has kept it relatively general and vague. For example, chapter 5, verse 6, he talks about faith expressing itself through love. Verse 13, the freedom to serve one another in love. Verses 16 and 23, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And verses 22 through 23, he mentions love in particular as the first of nine fruit of the Spirit. Stott says these passages show that the first and great evidence of our walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but our practical relationships of love with other people. So that's a clear barometer, but again, Paul has not gotten particularly specific about particular problems that one might deal with. He looks at the fruit, but those speak in general terms, not in specific terms to specific contexts. What's clear is that it's not going to be the flesh or the sinful nature, because that is incapable of love. It's by definition, really. Romans 14.23, Paul writes, anything that does not come from faith is sin. God is not interested in what we do for him until we first accept what he's done for us. And that's not just a matter of justification, but also sanctification as we live for the Spirit, live by the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that these things can take place. So in verses 22 and 23, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and that's helpful but somewhat vague. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 24 through 26, he describes a broad process, which again is helpful but not entirely specific. Verse 24, crucifying the self. Verse 25, keeping in step with the Spirit. And then verse 26, to avoid conceit and provoking each other. The language here is of challenging and competing, looking down on others, or envy, which is looking up in comparison in both cases, and self-absorption. 
God doesn't want us, and the Spirit will not allow us to live in conceit, to compete with each other in this manner, to live a life of either envy or condescension, focused on comparison, focused ultimately on ourselves rather than others, or on Christ and the Spirit. Instead, the calling is to both boldness and humility. Tim Keller's helpful on this when he says, only the gospel makes us neither self-confident nor self-disdaining, but both bold and humble. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis, who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So now as we move into chapter six, Paul does get very practical and specific. And as Peterson notes, he's gonna give three examples to forgive, to help, and to be responsible. I like what Peterson says about forgiveness, which we'll cover here in chapter 6, verse 1 in just a moment. He says, forgiveness is an immensely creative act. Condemning is simply reactionary. Condoning is simply lazy. Gentle forgiveness is the work of an artist. And that artistry comes through keeping in step with the Spirit. So the first half of Galatians 6.1 is, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So a very specific example and lots of detail to cover here. First, note that the opening has Paul addressing brothers or brothers and sisters, depending on your translation. In any case, he's addressing Christians, dealing with Christians. That's the direct interpretation. Of course, you can have applications of similar principles to other populations, but he's speaking to Christians about Christians. John Stott says here, just as the apostle argues about our Christian liberty from the fact that we are God's sons, so he argues for responsible Christian conduct from the fact that we are brothers. And in particular, the topic here is what to do with someone who is caught in a sin. Really big topic in the New Testament, many passages, and we'll hit on some of those as we develop the case that Paul makes here in Galatians 6.1. The first is that he's talking about sin, and that's a really important word to get into, especially in this context, that when you're dealing with legalists, a lot of times they elevate things to sins that aren't, in fact, sins. They'll take gray areas and turn them into black and white. So Paul is here directly dealing with sin, not some perception of sin or man's definition of sin, but God's definition of sin. The word caught leads to a lot of question among the commentators. Some argue that it implies some level of secrecy or perhaps not recognizing it as sin. If they were repentant, they wouldn't be caught. It also implies significant severity or it wouldn't be subject to discussion here in verse 1. If it's trivial, then it's not that big of a deal. It also may imply entanglement. Think of the language of Hebrews 12.1. And there's considerable debate on whether it's someone who is surprised by a sin or a temptation or someone who has a pattern of sin or a habit of behavior that is sinful. Either way, the principles hold, even if we're not exactly clear on what Paul was trying to communicate originally. Now, who does this concern? The object of the sentence is someone who is caught in sin. This is not a matter of gossip. We are to deal with a person who is caught in sin, not talk about it amongst ourselves. And it also points to the need to get all the facts, the perceptions, etc. from those involved in the problem. Now, the key verb here is restore. And the Greek word here is used for setting bones, mending nets, and uniting factions. And the goal of restoration is made clear by each of those contexts. You set bones to make them 
whole again as best as possible. You mend nets to make them useful again. And we work to unite factions to avoid division, disagreement, contention, and all sorts of other unpleasantries. The work is always about maybe the favorite word about God there is. It's the idea of redemption. The idea of restoration also implies skill and tact. Again, whether we're talking about bones, nets, or dealing with divisive people and factions, and it implies a vision and a hope for what can be. You can see where the healing process should take us. In some of these applications, setting bones in particular, it implies that there's pain involved, but there's also a healing as well. And so it's a loving pain if done properly. Remember C.S. Lewis in A Grief Observed talking about the grief that comes in life sometimes and people trying to comfort him with God. And he says, well, haven't you ever been to the dentist? You know, the dentist sometimes deals out pain, but it's for our good. And sometimes we're allowed to go through pain for our good as well. Here, a process of restoration involves pain short term in order to bring redemption and healing in the long run. And the last point I'd make here by way of analogy is that often it's more painful and difficult to fix these things if more time has passed. It's better to deal with these things usually sooner than later. So the goal here is to both confront and to comfort believers. Often these sins include trauma and self-inflicted pain to the person engaging in the sins. And then the dance gets even more interesting and difficult that you have to both confront and comfort believers. I'm reminded of Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And that's a lot of what's going on here, trying to benefit those who listen, building them up according to their needs. And that usually includes a combination of nursing them back to health, confronting bad behaviors, restitution for those who have been harmed, and so on. Again, we're talking about believers here. If you're not a believer, you can't be restored to something you've never had. And also note that a lot of this includes sins of omission, which would be especially important for legalists who are focused on the things that they do and usually missing out on opportunities for ministry. For most of us, it's a struggle to do one or the other of these, to comfort or to confront. But the importance here is, of course, to have both in hand as appropriate. We do it for the individual's benefit, to avoid the leavening effect of sin, and to protect the church's reputation. And in terms of restoring people and comforting them, if it's not the church, then who's going to do it? It falls to the church, and in particular, those who are spiritual, those who walk by the Spirit, to do this tough work. I have a lot more to say about this verse, but it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Right now we're in the middle of a discussion of the great and powerful Galatians 6.1, just the first half of the verse. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So far we've covered the object, someone who's caught in a sin, and the verb, restore. Now we want to get to the adverb, gently. Gentleness was one of the nine fruit of the Spirit, Maybe the most famous reference to gentleness is in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. 
So the adverb gently here gets us to the importance of style and substance. What's said and how it's said. One interesting thing to consider here is the frequent advantage of written over verbal communication in these matters. Written allows us to be more careful, gives the recipient more time to receive it, and more time to take a breath before they respond. So sometimes you don't have that luxury. Sometimes it's too much work. Sometimes it's just gonna cause more trouble to go written, but written often is an improvement over verbal. Gently is also in marked contrast to the Pharisees' legalistic harshness, which stems from their pride, something that Judaizers would be struggling with as well. The last thing we need is Christians shooting the wounded, especially those in our church. Another problem with gently for us is that often we put off responding and so we get provoked enough to finally do or say something and we act out of anger, not out of gentleness. So gentle is key. How to confront? Well, ideally, you have a relationship with the person. It allows more context. It allows you to be better understood and it allows for withdrawals against the deposits that one has in the figurative bank account of our relationships with other people. When you're dealing with strangers, all of this becomes more challenging. Beforehand, you should bathe it in prayer, you should check your own motives, and make sure that as much as you can, God is speaking through you. Again, this is all about walking in the Spirit. While you're confronting, make sure to distinguish between the sin and the sinner. Try to start with positives before you get into negatives. And when possible, it should be private, although there are occasions when it needs to be public. We saw an example of this from Paul himself earlier in Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, or as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.20, but those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Where possible and appropriate, you add in encouragement, comfort for the pain they put themselves and others through, Proper timing is important. Demonstrate empathy when you can. And be careful with a number of criticisms. I think about being a violin teacher and a student is doing 50 things wrong, but it's not appropriate for me to talk about 50. I should talk about the one or two big ones and get into the other ones later when it's appropriate. But all that said, it can't be so gentle that it fails to make contact, that it fails to make the point. It has to be as firm as necessary and as gentle as possible. And sometimes that's difficult, especially when it's not being particularly well-received, when people are looking to self-justify, when they have reasons or rationalizations, excuses for what they're doing. It can get very difficult in practice to do this well and to do it gently. And the last part of the grammar is the subject. This is to be done by you who are spiritual or you who live by the Spirit. Hebrews 5, 13, and 14 is relevant here. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, some of you hearing you who are spiritual or you who walk by the Spirit might be thinking that lets you off the hook, but the fact is we're all supposed to be in this position. When Paul writes in Hebrews 5, all of us are supposed to be mature. He's messing with those who are still infants. So this is not an excuse, at least indefinitely, to avoid a task that all of us should be capable of doing. Now that said, it is really difficult to do this. Remember that Jesus himself compares it to eye surgery when he talks about similar concepts in Matthew 7. 
Both the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit allow us the necessary discernment for seeing these problems and forming solutions. What are the mistakes we can make here? Well, we might be unable to see any problems. We might be able to see infinite problems and not be able to imagine what redemption and hope would look like. Or maybe we don't define the problems properly. We confuse biblical with cultural issues or our own personal fences, lines we've drawn in the sand to help us. Again, this is the province of the legalist. Or maybe we're not sure which sins or which problems to focus on as we confront. Some people get a kick out of confronting. It's as if they're hunting for sin and sinners. They see it as a sport. So it's neither sport nor spectator sport that we're called to here. It may involve letting people struggle for a time rather than stepping in to rescue them, letting the natural consequences of their decisions affect them for a time. There's just so many issues here, and it depends on so many things that it's only through the Spirit that we could possibly have the wisdom and discernment to know what is best to do. On top of that, the Spirit empowers us to provide the necessary compassion, empathy, and perspective. How do we view those who are struggling? need to see them how God sees them and what they can be with God. Do we see their needs or their faults? Do we view them as agents or victims? The scripture provides both pictures of both individual responsibility and being in bondage. One telling sign is we often imagine that we are in bondage and lack responsibility, while those outside of us, we often imagine to have pure agency and individual responsibility. Sanctification often reverses our usual perspective on this, where we take more responsibility for our own problems, and we're more likely to see others as in bondage, letting them off the hook more than we let ourselves. In terms of delivery, only the spiritual, only those walking by the Spirit, have the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, and the gentleness required here in chapter 6, verse 1. So, in a nutshell, we have something really important that's really difficult to do. A lot of possible mistakes here. We can fail to deal with it. We can fail to confront or to comfort. I think procrastination is a common thing or hoping that prayers will answer it when instead God wants to use us to heal, to confront, to comfort people. James 4.17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And that includes sins of omission in this regard. If we are supposed to step up and restore sinners gently and fail to do it, we are committing a great sin, ironically, against people who are probably viewed as greater sinners. But we should be spiritual, and we who are spiritual should be engaged in this sort of work. Sometimes it's out of fear. We miss the riskiness of love. Christ came that we might have life, not safety more abundantly. And so we take risk with our faith. We put things on the altar, so to speak, including relationships to say the things that need to be said. Or maybe we restore, but we don't do it fully. Do people really understand forgiveness and the amazing grace of God? Are we living that out in a way that illustrates the amazingness of God's grace? Or maybe they're not restored gently. Maybe it's not done by the spiritual, and if so, it's probably not being done well in style and or substance, or it's being done by those who can easily be charged with hypocrisy. Or maybe it's not even being done by Christians at all. Maybe it's done by the world instead, and thus it results in a black eye for God and the church. 
And finally, to repeat the challenge I've had a couple of times with this verse, this is meant for everyone. You may not be in a position to do this now, but you should strive for that. All of us should be in a position to be walking in the Spirit and thus able to restore a sinner gently. May it be so. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Right now, we're moving through Galatians 6, and actually, we haven't gotten very far. The last segment, we did the first half of verse 1, so I want to reread verse 1 and cover the second half of it. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So we spent a long time talking about the first part of that verse. It's classic, important, crucial, difficult to do. We have to restore sinners gently. In confronting them, we be as firm as necessary and as gentle as possible. All of that through the empowerment and the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us as we live and keep in step with the Spirit. But the second half of the verse warns us to be careful to avoid temptation. Very similar to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10:12. And the issue here is that those who have struggled with a specific issue are often the most able to help but also the most prone to stumble again. They have the authority to speak, and it does enhance their own recovery many times. They focus on other people. They give of their own lives and service. God is using them, redeeming them, and so on. But there's still a proclivity for temptation and fall here. Another angle is pride. If you don't struggle with something and you're helping, then you might be helping out of wrong motives, legalism, to gain attention, to have control over people, to feel superior, and so on. So there's temptations from either side of the coin. Again, it connects to the understanding that's implied in the beginning of the verse that there but for the grace of God go I. If we keep that in mind, it'll help us avoid the temptation that's being described here in verse 1. Romans 2.1 says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. This mindset allows me to have humility about myself and my capacity to help you with your issues. John Stott says this suggests that gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and proneness to sin. A very different temptation would be to rationalize the sin away, perhaps especially if I have similar struggles. This leads to another tension. I can be gentle enough, but so gentle that I'm actually to the point that I'm rationalizing it away. And that's not desirable as well. So the great balance and power of verse 1 is something that's difficult for us to do, but really important, including this closing remark to avoid the temptation of stumbling into trouble ourselves. Okay, verse 2 is also excellent. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Key phrase here, carry each other's burdens, and here, most likely given the context, it's speaking of the moral burdens and weaknesses that have been described in the previous verse. John MacArthur says about this, after picking up a sinning brother, we are to hold him up to help him bear his burden. He was restored, but I didn't leave him there. Christianity isn't a spectator sport. It isn't always enough to pick someone up. You may have to keep holding him up. So that's the most likely direct interpretation, but of course there are many other easy applications to other sorts of burdens. Notice here as well that this is a reference to Christians, but again we can extend it, not an interpretation, but an application to non-Christians as well. And the word for burden here is too much to carry by yourself. We'll see in 
verse 5 that there's a reference to the word load, and that's meant to be a lighter burden than the heavier burdens being described here. The purpose of all this is to fulfill the law of Christ, which is love, and of course this is completely in line with Christ's teachings, and it's in contrast to the legalists who are merely following the law, not of Christ, but of Moses. Tim Keller says here, it is probable that Paul is taking one more swipe at the Judaizers, the false teachers who are trying to get the Galatians to come under the law of Moses. These requirements have been described as a yoke, a burden, by the Council of Jerusalem, which met to decide the controversy over Gentile Christians' obligations to obey this Jewish ceremonial law. That's mentioned in Acts 15.10. Paul is telling the Galatians that rather than placing themselves under the burden of law fulfillment, they should be lifting burdens off others. And that ultimately, this is the way to fulfill the law. Warren Wearsby observes, the legalist is not interested in bearing burdens. Instead, he adds to the burdens of others. Another reference here is Matthew 23, 4, the Pharisees, for they bind heavy burdens that are grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Wearsby concludes, the legalist is always harder on other people than on himself, but the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others, that he might be able to help others, in particular with their burdens. If we broaden this out a bit, notice that Paul is also assuming that all of us will have burdens and that God does not want us to carry them alone. In other words, Christianity is not the same, nearly the same, as Stoicism. In fact, it's required that we love one another, which requires being in relationship with each other and doing things like sharing burdens. Keller again says here that to serve one another in love means to carry each other's burdens. This brings the lofty concept of love down to earth. Taking it a step further, it also assumes the need to be active in relationships with and in a community of believers and intimate enough so that we are individuals within that community who can be understood and ministered to. We think of Paul, Timothy, and Paul Barnabas relationships between peers, mentors, and mentees close enough to help each other with the burdens. If church is a Sunday morning only thing for you, you can't possibly be in a position to live out Galatians 6-2 properly. And then connecting back to verse 1, if you're going to confront or offer to comfort people, you must be willing to follow through. 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And that fits beautifully with the first two verses of Galatians 6. Now, what are some examples? It could be health, having a job or not, a frustrating job perhaps. It could be spiritual, financial, emotional, anger, grief, loneliness, depression, the list goes on, but it's something that's too heavy for someone to carry, and in community, in relationship, we're to help them carry those burdens. So how do we do this? What things do we do, thinking in terms of nouns and verbs? I think one thing that's overlooked a lot of times is the practice of prayer, quiet, and solitude to see options, for the Spirit to give us the options that are being described in verses 1 and 2, and what it means to live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Oftentimes, we don't know what is best to do, and so we rely on the Spirit through prayer, meditation, solitude to know what is best. And then as we're doing things with people, a lot of times it's just our presence. It's being with them, spending time with them. Sometimes it's a deed or a word, a prayer, a moment of touch, a note or a letter to listen, to encourage, maybe to remind them of God's promises. There's many things we can do, and again, what's the perfect thing to do depends on the moment. 
Now, how do we do it in terms of adjectives? And so I think words like sensitive and vulnerable come to mind. Being intentional, proactive, aggressive shouldn't be seen as a duty or done grudgingly. And it should be done immediately rather than procrastinating. We should offer practical advice without seeing it as some problem that needs to be solved. As useful, we should hold them accountable, empower, and persevere with them. Again, context dictates what is to be done. And again, that's the role for the Holy Spirit to help us discern and then to empower us to do it and to stick with it as necessary. Sometimes it's a matter of preventative and proactive measures. Not all of this is reactive. And again, we have the temptation warning that was at the end of verse 1. That's still in play here, particularly with what might be called boundary issues. Sometimes we help people and we let them trample our boundaries and we're not drawing the lines appropriately. So there's a number of challenges in how to do this. Again, it takes us back to verse 1. You who are walking in the Spirit are those who are being targeted here to do a lot of this work and to do it well. So how do we fall short of this command? The first easy application is a failure to bear the burdens of others. Maybe we believe we're not capable. Maybe we're afraid of rejection. We don't know that it's happening. We don't know what to do. We don't see others as worthy of our time. Or maybe we're simply so selfish as to be blind to any of this. Particularly as you're reading Old Testament narratives, go through the stories and think, what could they have done better? I think about the story of Leah and Rachel, and they're having tremendous struggles with their sisters, and you would hope that they would build each other up, and instead there seems to be little of that, and perhaps instead some tearing down relationships. What should we do in the middle of difficult circumstances? Another failure would be not letting others bear our burdens. That we want to live in safety. We don't want to make ourselves transparent and vulnerable. Maybe it's out of pride or independence. And the result of this is isolation and longer healing, if at all. Think as well here that you're robbing others of potential for earthly joy and heavenly reward. We might say something like, well, I don't want to burden them. But really, you're stealing their opportunity. They've been commanded. They've been offered an opportunity in God's kingdom to help you with your burden Don't take that from them. Sometimes it's difficult to accept grace, but we need to do so in our earthly relationships, again, in Christian community and relationship. Or maybe we want or demand that others carry our burdens. Maybe we would use a term like codependence here. We don't draw the boundaries well. We want and demand things from other people. Larry Crabb colorfully describes a marriage as a tick on a dog, but then it turns out to be just two ticks sucking on each other. That's not a great relationship for marriage or anything else. So demanding this, not appropriate. It's okay. It's legitimate to want others to help us, but it can't be out of a spirit of demanding this. Another mistake would be to impose burdens on others. That's what we've seen with the Judaizers, with the law and legalisms, or maybe we get people in trouble or tempt them with some form of carnal behavior And implicitly, it will connect to what we'll talk about in verse 5. When we don't carry our own load, we end up imposing burdens on others, things we should take care of on our own. There are other potential problems. Maybe we improperly seek the burdens of others to carry. Maybe we take them too easily or quickly. Maybe we handle them poorly. All of this is something that we gain through maturity, walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered verse one, a great verse, and now we move into the excellent verse two. 
carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Key phrase here, carry each other's burdens, most likely given the context of speaking of the moral burdens and weaknesses that have been described in the previous verse. John MacArthur says about this, after picking up a sinning brother, we are to hold him up to help him bear his burden. He was restored, but I didn't leave him there. Christianity isn't a spectator sport. It isn't always enough to pick someone up. You may have to keep holding him up. So that's the most likely direct interpretation, but of course there are many other easy applications to other sorts of burdens. Notice here as well that this is a reference to Christians, but again, we can extend it, not an interpretation, but an application to non-Christians as well. And the word for burden here is too much to carry by yourself. We'll see in verse 5 that there's a reference to the word load, and that's meant to be a lighter burden than the heavier burdens being described here. The purpose of all this is to fulfill the law of Christ, which is love, And of course, this is completely in line with Christ's teachings, and it's in contrast to the legalists who are merely following the law, not of Christ, but of Moses. Tim Keller says here, it is probable that Paul is taking one more swipe at the Judaizers, the false teachers who are trying to get the Galatians to come under the law of Moses. These requirements have been described as a yoke, a burden, by the Council of Jerusalem, which met to decide the controversy over Gentile Christians' obligations to obey this Jewish ceremonial law. That's mentioned in Acts 15.10. Paul is telling the Galatians that rather than placing themselves under the burden of law fulfillment, they should be lifting burdens off others and that ultimately this is the way to fulfill the law. Warren Wearsby observes the legalist is not interested in bearing burdens. Instead, he adds to the burdens of others. Another reference here is Matthew 23, 4, the Pharisees, for they bind heavy burdens that are grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Wearsby concludes the legalist is always harder on other people than on himself, but the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others that he might be able to help others, in particular with their burdens. If we broaden this out a bit, notice that Paul is also assuming that all of us will have burdens and that God does not want us to carry them alone. In other words, Christianity is not the same, nearly the same, as Stoicism. In fact, it's required that we love one another, which requires being in relationship with each other and doing things like sharing burdens. Keller again says here that to serve one another in love means to carry each other's burdens. This brings the lofty concept of love down to earth. Taking it a step further, it also assumes the need to be active in relationships with and in a community of believers and intimate enough so that we are individuals within that community who can be understood and ministered to. We think of Paul, Timothy, and Paul Barnabas relationships between peers, mentors, and mentees close enough to help each other with the burdens. If church is a Sunday morning only thing for you, you can't possibly be in a position to live out Galatians 6-2 properly. And then connecting back to verse 1, if you're going to confront or offer to comfort people, you must be willing to follow through. 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And that fits beautifully with the first two verses of Galatians 6. Now, what are some examples? It could be health, having a job or not, a frustrating job perhaps. It could be spiritual, financial, emotional, anger, grief, loneliness, depression, the list goes on. But it's something that's too heavy for someone to carry, and in community, in relationship, we're to help them carry those burdens. 
So how do we do this? What things do we do, thinking in terms of nouns and verbs? I think one thing that's overlooked a lot of times is the practice of prayer, quiet, and solitude to see options, for the Spirit to give us the options that are being described in verses 1 and 2, and what it means to live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Oftentimes we don't know what is best to do, and so we rely on the Spirit through prayer, meditation, solitude to know what is best And then as we're doing things with people, a lot of times it's just our presence. It's being with them, spending time with them. Sometimes it's a deed or a word, a prayer, a moment of touch, a note or a letter to listen, to encourage, maybe to remind them of God's promises. Many things we can do. And again, what's the perfect thing to do depends on the moment. Now, how do we do it in terms of adjectives? And so I think words like sensitive and vulnerable come to mind being intentional, proactive, aggressive, shouldn't be seen as a duty or done grudgingly, and it should be done immediately rather than procrastinating. We should offer practical advice without seeing it as some problem that needs to be solved. As useful, we should hold them accountable, empower, and persevere with them. Again, context dictates what is to be done, and again, that's the role for the Holy Spirit to help us discern and then to empower us to do it and to stick with it as necessary. Sometimes it's a matter of preventative and proactive measures. Not all of this is reactive. And again, we have the temptation warning that was at the end of verse 1. That's still in play here, particularly with what might be called boundary issues. Sometimes we help people and we let them trample our boundaries, and we're not drawing the lines appropriately. So there's a number of challenges in how to do this. Again, it takes us back to verse one. You who are walking in the spirit are those who are being targeted here to do a lot of this work and to do it well. So how do we fall short of this command? Well, the first easy application is a failure to bear the burdens of others. Maybe we believe we're not capable. Maybe we're afraid of rejection. We don't know that it's happening. We don't know what to do. We don't see others as worthy of our time. Or maybe we're simply so selfish as to be blind to any of this. Particularly as you're reading Old Testament narratives, go through the stories and think, what could they have done better? I think about the story of Leah and Rachel, and they're having tremendous struggles with their sisters, and you would hope that they would build each other up, and instead there seems to be little of that, and perhaps instead some tearing down relationships. What should we do in the middle of difficult circumstances? Another failure would be not letting others bear our burdens that we want to live in safety. We don't want to make ourselves transparent and vulnerable. Maybe it's out of pride or independence. And the result of this is isolation and longer healing, if at all. Think as well here that you're robbing others of potential for earthly joy and heavenly reward. We might say something like, well, I don't want to burden them, but really you're stealing their opportunity. They've been commanded, they've been offered an opportunity in God's kingdom to help you with your burden Don't take that from them. Sometimes it's difficult to accept grace, but we need to do so in our earthly relationships, again, in Christian community and relationship. Or maybe we want or demand that others carry our burdens. Maybe we would use a term like codependence here. We don't draw the boundaries well. We want and demand things from other people. Larry Crabb colorfully describes a marriage as a tick on a dog, but then it turns out to be just two ticks sucking on each other. That's not a great relationship for marriage or anything else. So demanding this, not appropriate. It's okay, it's legitimate to want others to help us, but it can't be out of a spirit of demanding this. Another mistake would be to impose burdens on others. That's what we've seen with the Judaizers, with the law and legalisms. 
or maybe we get people in trouble or tempt them with some form of carnal behavior. And implicitly, it will connect to what we'll talk about in verse 5. When we don't carry our own load, we end up imposing burdens on others, things we should take care of on our own. There are other potential problems. Maybe we improperly seek the burdens of others to carry. Maybe we take them too easily or quickly. Maybe we handle them poorly. All of this is something that we gain through maturity, walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. So let's move on to verse 3. If any of you think you are something when you are nothing, you deceive yourselves. First thing to note is the NIV, which I typically use for the broadcast, uh, does not use the word so at the beginning, which is in the Greek. So there's supposed to be a connection with verse 3 to what we've just read in verses 1 and 2. Some interesting phrases here. Something when he is nothing, and it results in deceiving oneself. And this is always, in a sense, the case, and it certainly fits the general context of Galatians. Stott's helpful here. He says, is this an exaggeration? Not when the Spirit has opened our eyes to see ourselves as we are, rebels against the God who made us in his image, deserving nothing at his hand but destruction. When we realize and remember this, we shall not compare ourselves favorably with other people, nor shall we decline to serve them or bear their burdens." This is a clear reference to pride, and in the context we've been developing here in Galatians 6, it connects back to verses 1 and 2, and that pride kills the burden-bearing love that Paul has been describing and trying to encourage the Galatians to follow. Fear can knock out love of this sort, as we've talked about. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. But here the concern is conceit, chapter 5, verse 26, and here, in verse 3, a reference to pride. And, of course, this is a much bigger problem when we're dealing with legalism. So if we talk about the problem of pride and defining it more precisely, we have to be careful here because there's a lot of things that come off as counterfeits. C.S. Lewis talks about how the Lord wants to bring us to a spot where we could be just as happy if we built the best cathedral in the world as if someone else had done it. Frederick Beekner says something similar. True humility doesn't consist of thinking ill of yourself, but of not thinking of yourself much differently from the way you'd be apt to think of anybody else. It's the capacity for being no more and no less pleased when you play your own hand well than when your opponents do. Or as Paul writes in Romans 12:3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Pride is often considered the root of all sin for good reason. It's evident way back in Genesis 3 with original sin. And along with lying, it's the deadliest of all sins since it makes one immune to input from God or others. Paul notes that pride results from deception and results in more deception. So the connection between lying and pride is important to catch. And it has a great impact on both our vertical and horizontal relationships. It leads to disdain for others self-righteousness, and a sense of self-dependence away from God. A great Old Testament passage on this is Obadiah 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride is seeing ourselves as higher than we really are better than we really are, stronger than we really are, imagining that we're independent. 
Molly Ivins sarcastically talked about pulling up yourselves by your bootstraps. Not so helpful if you're bootless, and the Christian is always bootless. In our own strength, we only have boots through the grace of God, through the Spirit, and through Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. How do we counter pride? We focus on Christ and how God views us. Chapter 5, verse 25, we keep in step with the Spirit. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we lift others up rather than putting ourselves up or putting others down. And as we'll see in verse 4, we scrutinize our own work instead of focusing so much and being critical of others. But that's a discussion for a different day. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.